There are some elements of God's revelation that I had just as soon skip in my teaching. And uh, the one we're going to approach this morning falls in that category. It's, um, it has to do with God's severe mercy. Paul talks uh, in the book of Romans about the kindness and the severity of God. I like to talk about the uh, kindness of God, his loyalty to us, and the intensity of his love, his relentless love for us. It's uh, hard for me to talk about uh, how tough God can get at times. But uh, that's a part of the revelation we have in Scripture. That's part of the counsel that we have to take seriously. And uh, periodically it comes around in our studies, and so we need to deal honestly with it. And this letter to the church in Pergamum this morning has to do with that sort of thing. Let's uh, turn again to the second chapter of Revelation. And I want to begin reading with the 12th verse. We've talked about the first two churches in Asia Minor, the church in Ephesus, church in Smyrna, and now the Lord is addressing this letter to the church in Pergamum. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. Uh, you'll recognize this is the formula that introduces all of these letters. First, he addresses the letter to the angel or the messenger of the church, and as we've seen, that's not uh, a superhuman being, not an angel as we normally think of angels but rather a human messenger. The Greek term angelos has the idea basically of messenger. And for myself, I, I think this refers to the delegate or the representative who came from the church in Pergamum to Patmos. And uh, the writing was given to him, and then he uh, took it back to the church in Pergamum and re was responsible for its distribution there. So the Lord is addressing his words through this messenger to the church in Pergamum. And as he normally does, he picks up some element from the vision that precedes and applies it to the church because some aspect of the vision in each case is uniquely appropriate to that church. In this case, it's the fact that he has a sharp two-edged sword issuing from his mouth. The sword here is the little short Roman rumpia, the little sword that made the Roman army famous. And uh, it's a picture of judgment everywhere in in the book of uh, Revelation. Later on in chapter 19, he describes Jesus coming on a white stallion with a sword issuing from his mouth, and it's there merely symbolic of the judgment which the Lord will take upon the nations at that time, at the, at the second coming. So uh, the reason it's included here, uh, picked up from the vision and applied here, is because this is a church that needs to hear this particular hard word. There is a judgment that needs to take place. Now, um, the Lord says, again, in verse 13, as he does in each case, I know. I know where you dwell. Here the Lord gazes again at the church, scrutinizes it, sees things that you and I would not see, analyzes it at a level that you and I would never, uh, uh, would never discern, and uh, both commends them and applies a corrective. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. And thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
The Lord refers twice to the fact that they dwell where Satan dwells. That's where his throne is. That's where wickedness is particularly entrenched. It's helpful, therefore, to know what the uh, historical cultural setting was for this letter. The uh, city of Pergamum was a great cultural center. They had a huge library there. They had more volumes in that library than we have in the Boise Public Library, over 200,000 volumes. And when you think back to what it took in those days to make a book, you know, they didn't have printing presses. They had to copy everything out by hand, and it was done on uh, parchment or on leather, vellum, and it was a laborious uh, process. Uh, you give, it gives you some idea of uh, their commitment to learning. These were a highly cultured, highly educated people. It was a vast library there with theaters and a great amphitheater there, larger than Bronco Stadium. And uh, they had gymnasiums there, and, and it was just the center of cultural life in Asia Minor because it was the provincial capital. It was the capital city of Asia Minor. And uh, the Romans were there in force, and that's where laws were made and, and enacted. So you can pick up something of the spirit of this particular city. The Roman government was essentially atheistic, humanistic. They really cared nothing for human rights. Uh, it was a totalitarian rule. They got their way whether anyone wanted to, um, to comply or not. The people were heavily taxed. The, most of the money that went into Roman coffers were used to build uh, large buildings. It all went back to maintain the government rather than getting into the hands of the people. And the government uh, sort of paid off the people by, by uh, having extravagances in the amphitheater and kept them from too much unrest in that way. But the people really didn't benefit much from the heavy taxation levied uh, on them by the Roman Empire. It was also a very immoral setting because... Uh, Somehow this sort of thing goes along with, uh, with humanistic thinking. If you've ever seen any of the pictures on the walls of private homes in Pompeii, you have some idea of what was going on at this time. Uh, pornography was rife. It was uh, aesthetically very pleasing. These were highly cultured people. They weren't dirty old men. But uh, you know, they weren't scribbling graffiti on the walls. They were, they were drawing beautiful works of art on the walls of their... Uh, of their houses, but it was pornography, just flat-out pornography. This was the spirit of, of the age. Um, William Barclay, who is a classic scholar and has done quite a bit of research into this period, has a little compendium of statements by Roman authors. This, this comes from their own, uh, their own mouth, uh, Roman poets and playwrights. He says, when, German, uh, when Greek laxity invaded Rome, it was sadly coarsened. Hibernia, says Juvenal, will no more be satisfied with one man than she would with one eye. Roman women, says Seneca, were married to be divorced and were divorced to be married. Most of them distinguished the years not by the names of the consuls but by the names of their husbands. Seneca says chastity is simply proof of ugliness. Another writer says innocence is not rare, it is non-existent. The upper stratum of Roman society had become largely promiscuous. Even Messalina, the empress, the wife of Claudius, slipped out of the royal palace at nights to serve in a public brothel. Unnatural vice was rampant. It began in the imperial household. Caligula notoriously lived in habitual incest with his sister Drusilla. 
and the lust of Nero did not even spare his mother Agrippina. Gibbon says of the first 15 emperors, Claudius was the only one whose taste in love was entirely correct. Nero married a youth called Sporus and went in marriage procession with him through the streets of Rome, and he himself was married to a freedman called Doriferous. The historians speak of Hadrian's passion for males and the adulteries with married women to which he was addicted. And then uh, uh, Barclay's footnote is, it is to be noted that all the evidence which we have adduced for the sexual immorality of the world contemporary with the New Testament comes not from Christian writers, but from pagans who were disgusted with themselves. Now, that's the way the world was. That's what uh, Pergamum was like. And we say, you know, what's new? The world's like that today, and, and that's a fair analysis of the world. That's the world we live in. So the question is, how do we live in a world like that? How can we prevent ourselves from blending in to society around us? What sort of things ought we to do to have maximal impact upon our life and times? That's the concern that the book of Revelation has because these people are heading into tough times and they need to know how to live in view of the times that, that are, were upon them. Most of us really do need to learn how to live comfortably in the world. I know that sounds strange because we talk a lot about worldliness and not being worldly. But uh, we do need to learn how to be comfortable in the world. We don't want to pick up the world's attitudes and, and we don't want to violate scripture we want to be godlike in the world but still we need to learn how to be in some sense at home in the world and most of us have difficulty there if you can think back to your non-christian days you uh, you felt at home in the world and then when you became a christian you felt uh, completely out of uh, place with christians i mean they were the oddest people around they did strange things they played strange games and, and they just it took a while to get comfortable and then you got very comfortable with christians and then you started feeling uncomfortable with all your old non-Christian friends, and you, you just didn't feel at home with them any longer. That's really too bad, because that's where the Lord spent a great deal of his time. He was the friend of sinners. He was perfectly comfortable with non-Christians. Not their sin, but he was comfortable with, with the people. Most of us, I think, react in one of two ways. We either retreat from the world, or we just go through the world leaving a trail of debris behind us. Um, we may retreat into Christian books, Christian radio. We get on the, on the cable and we can plug into 24-hour Christian TV. And, and we don't have to go out in the world and, and see what's going on out there and become contaminated by it. We're perfectly comfortable to stay at home in a Christian environment. So a friend of mine describes that as rabbit hole Christianity. We're like rabbits who leap out of our holes and dash through the hard, hostile world and then leap into another hole and we're safe and secure. We just run from one Christian group to the next. And that's unfortunate. We do need to be unworldly in the sense that our character is unworldly, but we do not need to be divorced from the world around us. We need to be right in the middle of things, right in the thick of things. That's where the Lord was. The other extreme is to go through the world and just create a lot of trauma, unnecessary trauma. Uh, the gospel itself is offensive enough without our making it more offensive. Um, there's The cross bothers people, but we shouldn't by our actions necessarily, unless they're, they're consonant with Scripture, bother people. We ought to be the most gracious, the most courageous, the most outgoing, the most loving, the most thoughtful people in the world if we correctly understand the gospel, you see. 
we shouldn't unsettle people unnecessarily. Now, it's, it's my conviction that the book of Revelation, as perhaps no other book in the New Testament, tells us how to live graciously with real grace and beauty and poise in the world. That's his concern. Now, the Lord has two things to say to this church. One is a word of commendation. The other is a word of correction, which we need to, uh, need to heed. The first is a word of commendation. He says, You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They had apparently been through a time of persecution. We know that uh, just about this time, when Domitian came to the uh, throne of the Roman Empire, he began to persecute Christians simply because they named the name of Christ. And the per perse uh, persecution became much more intense. Apparently, someone by the name of Antipas in Pergamum had been put to death for his faith. We don't know a thing about Antipas other than what's written here. Some of the church fathers say that he died in a particularly uh, uh, terrible way. But uh, we're not given much information other than the fact that this man was not delivered physically. He died. He was put to death for his faith. And the Lord commends this church because they did not deny my name in the past. The, the verb is, is imperfect. It goes in the past. Um, but you are continuing to hold on to my name. So not only had they denied his name during this time of persecution, but they were continuing to, to walk on in obedience to the Lord. Uh, it's another reminder that when we come to Christ, we can expect persecution. People will not understand us. And it may go this far. We are very fortunate here in the United States that we have a, a great deal of freedom. We can practice our faith without much pressure. But uh, there is some pressure. And we, like the, the Pergamines, need to know that there is deliverance, not from the pressure, but from ourselves, our tendency to cave in and capitulate, give in to the world, become like the world. We can stand tall. We, can, we don't have to give up. We don't have to bail out. We don't have to quit. We can go on being what God wants us to be in the midst of whatever our circumstances are. You women that are in the Bible studies know of, uh, remember from this past week, Paul's encouragement to the uh, church in Philippi. He, he says, these things, that is, the, uh, his imprisonment and the circumstances sur surrounding his imprisonment, will lead to my deliverance. And we say, aha, he'll be let out of prison. But the next verse says, no. No, that's not what he means at all. He says, according to my earnest expectation that in everything Christ will be ma magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. See? If he dies, he'll still be delivered. In other words, he, he will be delivered from his tendency to give in to the world around him. He will give witness. He will be godly, no matter what the circumstances are. Now, that's the thing for which this church in, in Pergamum is, is commended. Says, you, you hung in there. You held on to my name. You didn't give up. You didn't panic. You didn't quit. You endured. That's his commendation. But there is a word of complaint, and it's, it's a strong one. He says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. He does not say that those who hold the teaching of Balaam are teaching in the church. That would not have been tolerated in this church. That was being tolerated to some extent in one of the other churches, but not this one. He says you're permitting people to go on believing in and acting upon the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
which he later identifies, which he earlier identifies with Balaam. You're permitting this to go on. There are people in your assembly that hold this, this teaching. And the question is, who are these Nicolaitans, and who is this fellow Balaam, and what does the Lord mean? Um, unfortunately, the, the writers who wrote shortly after the New Testament, the Church Fathers, don't tell us who the Nicolaitans were other than to say they were the followers of Nicholas, which is like telling us who's buried in Grant's tomb. doesn't help too much. But uh, by looking closely at the text, uh, you'll see that the Lord is identifying the teaching of the Nicolaitans with the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, Thus, or so, you also have some who in the same way, that is, in the same way of those who hold the teaching of Balaam, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So whatever, whoever these Nicolaitans were, they were uh, caught up in the teaching of Balaam. So that raises the next question, who is Balaam? Well, Balaam is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Um, sort of a negative example, an example of what not to do and to be. And that's the way the apostles use him, too, in the New Testament. Actually, his donkey is better known than Balaam, but uh, Balaam himself has a great deal of significance. <clears throat> he was a Gentile wizard. He was a magi. He was a magician. And uh, he lived in Babylon in a city called Pether. The uh, Babylonian word for Pether, translated Pether, means uh, interpreter. So uh, most people think this was, a, this was a city that was populated by magicians or fortune tellers, and people came to the city to have their dreams interpreted. That's, that's what they did for a living. They were prophets, astrologers, wizards like Merlin, and uh, as it happened, a man by the name of Balak, who was the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. Israel was uh, camped uh, along the east side of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab, and there were a lot of them. They were spread all over the plains. And Balak, who was the king of Moab, panicked because of these people. He thought that he'd be pushed uh, right out of his, his holdings. And so he hired Balaam to come curse the nation of Israel, sent emissaries up to Pether, and they uh, tried to induce Balaam to come down and curse the people of God. But God got there first, and he revealed to Balaam that these were indeed his people, and uh, he could not curse them because they were blessed. God had already blessed them, and he couldn't curse them. So Balaam sent the messengers home to Balak. But they came again, and this time their wallets were a little fatter, and uh, Balaam took note of the fact that they brought along some cash. And uh, so he says, well, he says, uh, the Lord told me not to curse them. However, he says, I'll go back and see if the Lord has something else to say. And so he goes back and uh, the Lord says, okay, you go, but you only tell them what I tell you to say. And you only prophesy what I put in your mouth. So Balaam starts back to um, Moab with these messengers and uh, Balak finds a star platform for him to stand on where he can oversee the, the people of Israel as they're camped in the plains. And he proceeds to curse them, except when he opens his mouth, out comes a blessing. And in effect, he says, oh, that we had it as good as you have it in Israel back in Babylon. That's the basis of his first prediction. And Balak's mouth drop and drops open. He says, now, wait a minute. I told you to curse them and you're blessing them. And Balaam says, well, I have to say what God says to me. So Balak says, well, let's try another location. So he takes him up to another mountain, and he puts him on top of the peak, and he says, now there they are, curse them. And he opens his mouth to curse them, and out comes another blessing. It's one of the, one of the uh, uh, 
predictions of the coming of Messiah, the scepter residing in, in Judah. It's a remarkable prediction right out of the mouth of a Gentile unbeliever, a wizard, and he blesses them. And Balak says, this has got to come to a stop. I hired you to, to curse them. And so he takes him to another hill, and Balak, uh, Balaam starts to predict not only blessing upon the nation of Israel, but he curses Moab and all of Israel's enemies. And Balak says, that's enough. And he brings him back down from the hill, and he's about ready to fire him. But the New Testament writers pick up something that's not clear in the Old Testament unless you really look for it. And it is that Balaam was so intent upon getting his fee that he came up with another plan. He said, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what we'll do. Go find all the lovely young women in the country of Moab and send them down to Israel and we'll subvert them morally. And that's exactly what they did. These beautiful young women went down uh, to the tents of Israel and they seduced the men there, brought them back to Moab and they, uh, they went to their pagan temples and the, the worship in these pagan temples was invariably uh, uh, sexual and orgiastic and, and he, the, the thing just fell apart. And God had to judge his people severely. And that's the teaching of Balaam. <laughs> you teach someone else to subvert God's people through immorality. And apparently that's what was going on in Pergamum. Now, we don't know who was teaching this or what form it took. Perhaps uh, teachers were saying, look, you can't, you have to be in the world. After all, Jesus was the friend of sinners. So you've got to get out there and mix it up with sinners, and that means you have to sin some. So it's all right. A little, uh, little adultery is okay because that's the way you get in with people. Now, it's, to me, it seems absurd that anyone would teach that way, but apparently that's what was going on. Or it may that teachers were saying, because you are God's people and blessed, it's all right to do anything else. I'm inclined to move in that direction. It's the same sort of thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 6 when he, he points out that though we are forgiven... The cross does more than merely render us clean and forgiven. It also gives us the power to change our lives. Because people were saying, you know, I, I, I was sinking deep in sin and, and the Lord delivered me and he forgave me and I'm forgiven for all of life. Now I can do anything I want to. And uh, I've heard that, those statements. Perhaps you have too. And I've even thought those sorts of things. After all, I'm forgiven. So why not sin? It's no big deal. My destiny is secure. I'm not going to lose my salvation. So why not go ahead and sin? That will just show God to be more gracious. And he's, he's already he's committed to me. He's got to save me. So it's all right. I can indulge myself a little bit in sexual fantasy or, or lie or a lie or, or whatever it may be See, because, because I'm forgiven. And evidently, this is what was happening in Pergamum. And so the people were getting involved in the immoral practices of the city. And the church was tolerant of this sort of thing. Their attitude was, well, boys will be boys, tut, tut. But they weren't doing anything about it. And it was destroying the church from the inside out. And notice what the Lord says in verse 16. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The word to repent is addressed to the church. 
The point is this. You change your mind about those you're tolerating or else I will come in judgment against them. You see what he's saying? Now, what had been their attitude before? Well, one of toleration. We'll just tolerate this sort of thing. He says, change your, change your mind about that. Do something about those who hold this teaching or else I will come against them with the sword of my mouth. Either you do something about them or I will. Either they fall into your hands or they fall into mine. And as Hebrews puts it, it is an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we have to realize he's not talking here about any final and ultimate judgment. These words are addressed to Christians, to believers, whose destiny is secure. He's talking about the Father's discipline of those of us that get out of hand. And that discipline is always redemptive. It's never punitive. He's not merely trying to punish. He's trying to get us back, to win us back. And it's this that he has in mind when he says, either you do something redemptive to stop those people, or I'll have to. See, we don't like to do that. And I think sometimes we're, we think we're more loving than God is because we don't want to act when others are, are disobedient to truth. We want to gloss over it. Love, we say, covers a multitude of sins. So we'll just let people go on and we'll not do anything about their sin. But you see, that's not loving. That's the most unloving thing that we can do because if we don't act, God will have to. So the question is, what was this church to do? Well, this, this command assumes a great deal of information that's found elsewhere in the New Testament because there is a redemptive action that the church must carry out. Now, I don't generally like to do this. Uh, I like to stay in the text that we're studying, but there are two passages I want you to look at. One is 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll look at these quickly, and then we'll come back to the, to the text in Revelation 2. <clears throat> There was a church, uh, there was a problem in the church in Corinth, a moral problem. And Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. It's using sleep there in a metaphorical sense. They're dead. God had to move against the church in Corinth with the sword of his mouth. Some had fallen ill. Some had died. There is, Scripture says, a sin unto death. If we persist in sin as Christians, the Lord may have to take us home. That's always the last step. He always begins by exhorting us from the Word. And then He exhorts us through others. And if we don't respond, He may bring pressure of some sort into our life, physical affliction or economic distress or any number of things to get our attention. Now, ill health or... Failing uh, fortune doesn't mean that uh, necessarily that God is disciplining us, but he can use that, that particular means to get us to listen. And that's what was happening in this church. But, Paul says, when... Uh, pardon me, verse 31. But if we were judging ourselves rightly, we would not have been judged. Had we been judging ourselves, he said, this wouldn't have happened. God would not have had to take hand in things. But, he says in verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. The whole thing is redemptive. You see, it's designed to get us back, to win us back. 
Now, the first step is to judge ourselves. That's Paul's point. If we know that we're persisting in sin, and here he's talking about high-handed sin, not those sins that we fall into from time to time, inadvertently, the ones that we want to avoid. But if we're holding out, we're deliberately resisting the Spirit of God, then we need to judge ourselves. Take a look at ourselves and align our lives with the Word and say, I can't go on like this. It's going to destroy me. And repent. Change the direction of our life. Change the attitude toward our sin. Now, none of us is going to be perfect. We're going to struggle in our weakness. We all will. But what God sees is the attitude of our heart. If we're really stiff-arming God, that's, that's the problem. If we're just struggling, that's not the problem. God, in his own time, will take care of us. He's committed to us. He's going to cause us to grow. What he's talking about here is deliberate resistance to God's will. And Paul says the first step is to sit in judgment on that. Stop doing it. You have the power to change. Start moving in the right direction. That's so we will avoid the chastening of God. Now, the next passage we want to look at is Matthew 18. In verse 12, the Lord uh, uses the figure of the 99 and one that goes astray, the hundred sheep that a man has, one of whom goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who have not gone astray. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's talking about believers. And when a believer strays away, the Lord leaves the 99 and he goes and gets that one and brings him back. Verse 15 says, And if your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. If your brother strays away from the, the 99, you go get him, because that's what a good shepherd does. Not that you go in uh, strident, self-righteous terms and lay the law on him and demand that he come back, but, but with love and with assurance, you call him back. You move it alongside and give encouragement. Now, he's not talking here about things that people do that just uh, bug us, you know, mannerisms and and personality quirks that bother us. He's talking about disobedience to a clear statement of Scripture. If you see me disobeying Scripture, the Lord says, go after the man. If I see you, the Lord says, go after that person. This is not merely something that the church leadership, the elders do for you. It's something you do for the elders. This is something that brothers do for brothers and sisters for sisters and brothers for sisters and sisters for brothers. To use the Lord's metaphor, we wash one another's feet. And you don't plunge them into icy water or scalding water. You just take warm water and, and lovingly and tenderly wash their feet. And the Lord says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He may not listen immediately, but as Proverbs puts it, that um, uh, after a time, we'll find blessing. Very often, people, uh, people will respond. And if he responds, he says, you've gained a brother. But uh, what if he doesn't respond? Well, then the Lord says in verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. You take another brother or sister, and you appeal to them again to come back to the truth. 
This is, you take two or three not merely to gang up on them, but simply to establish that this is not a personal thing. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, a truth is established. So you appeal to them again. And again, if they listen, you've gained your brother. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the hard part. Then there needs to be some public declaration of the fact that this brother is, is, is in sin, is walking in sin. But again, this is not done to cut the person off. Because as Jesus goes on to point out, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. The assumption is that the church will go make a further appeal to him. That everyone will put their arms around this brother or sister and encourage them to come back to the Lord, to deal with the sin, and offer support and encouragement and help through the transition period. That's what the church can do. And then he says, if he won't listen to you, then let him be to you as a tax collector and sinner. Then you may have to put him outside of the body so God can act directly upon him. Now, these are hard words, and we don't like to do that. I don't like to do that to people, and I certainly don't like to have it done to me. But we need to do it for one another. Jesus put it in the form of a command in John 13. If I've done it to you, you also ought to do it to one another. And as Paul says in Galatians 6, If you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are walking in the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, the next time around, you may be on the other side of the table and your brother may be correcting you. So we can never go with the attitude that we've got it all together. Why don't you shape up? It's rather that we're in this together. Let's help each other grow up. See, that's the attitude we have to take. And to this church in Pergamon, the Lord says, look, the one thing I have against you is that you're tolerating all sorts of things. In this case, it was immorality, but it could be anything. It can be... Uh, people cheating on their income tax, or it could be uh, people who are dishonest in their business, or people who are, uh, who are gossips, or who are critical, or resentful, or bitter. What should we do? Well, it's unloving to simply gloss over the fact of their sin, because if we don't take steps to help them back, the Lord will have to. And it's a far better thing for us to do it than for them to fall into God's hands. Now, that's the message that uh, the Lord delivers to this church in Pergamon. And the thing that strikes me about this is how easily our priorities get, get out, of, out of order. We start thinking about the world around us, and we see the terrible state of, uh, of, our, of our land and the morality of our community. And we jump over the immediate to uh, pass judgment on, this, on secular society. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with that sort of thing. And if things are happening in your schools and in your community that uh, are morally wrong, then we as Christians need to take action, always graciously, but perhaps courageously and very firmly. But that's not the first priority. The first priority is that we purify the church. Because if we have a pure church, then the world will sit up and take notice. But it's a church that has to be purified by love not by self-righteousness or by law, but by a group of people who care enough for each other that they're willing to move to meet a need wherever it is and reach out and embrace a brother and bring him back in. As Peter puts it, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It has to start with us. And when we are the kind of people that God destined us to be, then 
the world will sit up and listen. Let's stand together. Your Father, these are hard words, but they're good words, and we need to take them seriously. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth and then giving yourself to us to make it all possible. Deliver us, Lord, from pride and self-righteousness and feelings that we have to correct everyone, but give us a a courage and a willingness to move alongside someone else who's struggling and hurting and take them by the arm and and help them to move back in line with, with your will. Help us to do that for one another, and may we as your people go out into the world a God-like people with all of our weakness depending upon you, displaying your, your life wherever we go. It's our intention that as we do so, you'll get the attention of those around us through us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.